0: Verses 1 to 18. This is the third Sunday of Advent, and today we're focusing on Jesus' statement, I am the Good Shepherd. So, I invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Holy Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through the Apostle John, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the gift of the Scriptures preserved for us by the Holy Spirit, inspired without error, given to us for life and godliness, so that to read the Bible is to receive all that is needed, Father. For the Christian life, to read the Bible is to hear Your very voice speaking to us for our life, for our good, for the preservation of our souls. Father, grant us ears to hear Your Word with faith, Father, to believe what You have spoken. Pray that You would keep me from error. Pray that You would grant Your people discernment. I pray that what is said now is said in a way that's faithful to the Scriptures, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take His Word and apply it to our hearts and bring about a great harvest of faith and perseverance to the glory of Christ's name. And we pray in His name. Amen. Throughout the Old Testament, God employs a number of vivid images to describe His relationship to His people. In the book of Jeremiah, God calls Himself a Father and Israel his son. In the prophecy of Hosea, God uses the image of marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife to describe the depth of His love for His people. In the book of Isaiah, God is the vine dresser, and Israel is His vineyard. Father and son, husband and wife, vine dresser and vineyard. Those are just a few examples, but it's enough to make the point. Throughout the Old Testament, God uses a number of arresting pictures, images that are vivid, that get our attention and describe His relationship to His people. But perhaps the most frequent image of all is that of a shepherd and his flock. The roots of this image go all the way back to the Exodus where God, like a shepherd, led His people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. The image progressed from there So that leaders like Moses and Joshua and David were all depicted as the Lord's under-shepherds. Men specifically set apart to lead God's people. By the time we get to the Psalms, the image is firmly established. We think of the well-known and beloved Psalm 23 that says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or we think of the stirring declaration of Psalm 100 where we hear God's people proclaim, We are His people. The sheep of his pasture. Go to any part of the Old Testament. Any part from Genesis all the way to Malachi. Go to any part of the Old Testament and you'll find some aspect of this shepherd and flock image. It's a consistent thread that runs through the history of God's people. But as the Old Testament draws to a close, this image takes on a different tone and not entirely for the better. By the time we get to the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, by the time we get to the prophets, God's people were not being shepherded well. In fact, they were being downright abused. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a glimpse of how bad it had become and it's a tragic picture. This is from Ezekiel 34. Listen to what... The Lord says, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. That's a far cry from Psalm 23, isn't it? It gets worse though. Again, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to seek them or to search for them. Friends, that's how the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends on that note with God's people scattered in desperate need for someone to come and shepherd them once again. It's precisely this desperation that Jesus confronts here in John 10 when He says, I am the Good Shepherd. Now you have to understand Jesus' audience to catch the significance of His statement. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the supposed shepherds of, of Israel. And just one chapter earlier, in John chapter 9, Jesus had healed a man born blind. You probably remember that miracle. It was stunning. He heals a man born blind. Do you remember how the... Pharisees responded to that miracle, they kicked the man out of the synagogue. Think about that. A man born blind, healed, and the shepherd's response is, get out of the synagogue. Which is the same as like cutting him off from the people of God. You see, it was exactly the same situation that Ezekiel had described in his day. Heartless shepherds harming God's people. This is why Jesus begins the chapter talking about thieves and robbers. And in verse 1, thieves and robbers who sneak into the sheepfold. He's confronting the Pharisees. They're not shepherds. They're thieves. They're bandits. And they harm God's people. And this is precisely why Jesus has come. This is part of God's purpose for the incarnation. Jesus has come to remedy the failed leadership of God's people. All of those Old Testament passages about God shepherding His people, all of them come together and find their fulfillment in Christ. No longer will God's people be scattered and neglected. They will be shepherded once more. And amazingly, Jesus Himself, the Son of God, will be at the head of the flock. Now, while this background... Is certainly helpful for understanding Jesus' words. There's also much more in John 10 that should encourage us. Think of it this way: Jesus doesn't claim to simply be the shepherd, he says that he's the good shepherd. The adjective is significant, for it gets to the heart of Jesus' mission. He's not simply filling a gap. Please hear me clearly on this. Jesus is not simply filling a gap and making up the difference between bad leaders and good leaders. He's not a stopgap. He's, he's the only one that can do this. He's doing only what He can do. He's leading God's people in a way that is good, exemplary, and excellent. So to embrace Him as the good shepherd, you've got to see not only that He leads God's people, but that He leads them in a way that's beyond compare. He leads them in a way that if you take Him out, they don't just have a deficient leadership, they have no leadership. They have no shepherding. That's what makes Him good. And that's where we find the encouragement. So here's what I'd like to do during our time together in John 10. Let's start in verse 1 and consider the marks of Jesus' ministry that make Him not just the shepherd, but the good shepherd. What is it that defines Jesus and separates Him from all other shepherds? What are the marks of his ministry? There's six of them in total. That's right, I said six. Got to change your lunch plans because we got double the normal amount of points. Six in total. And taken together, they should greatly encourage us that though we are but frail sheep, there is a shepherd who will ensure we safely reach our heavenly home. Number one, Jesus leads his sheep with faithful care. Jesus leads his sheep with faithful care. Notice verse 2. Unlike the thieves and robbers who sneak into the sheepfold, the shepherd enters by the door. Why does he enter by the door? Well, very simply because the sheep belong to him and he has the right to enter. And then notice what the shepherd does after he enters. Verse 3. He calls the sheep by name and he leads them out. This is key, friends. Shepherds in the first century didn't drive their sheep from behind, they led them from the front, often calling each sheep by a specific name. That's the emphasis Jesus elaborates on in verse 4. Notice what he says, "When when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, not behind them, before them. It's a stirring picture, isn't it? On their own, sheep have almost no chance of finding safety. Sheep are notoriously dumb and defenseless. They easily wander off track, and sometimes they walk right into danger, not even aware of where they're headed. Knowing this, what does the shepherd do? How does he care for his prone-to-wander sheep? By leading them from the front. If there's danger to come, he'll meet it first. If there's a turn to take, he'll ensure they don't miss it. That's the shepherd's leadership, friends. It's faithful and careful. He leads not from the back, but from the front. What's more, this careful leadership is also effective. Again, notice verse 4. The sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. We'll, We'll draw out this relationship a bit more later in the sermon, but for now, it's enough to note that the shepherd knows his sheep, and the sheep know him. You see, it's a reminder that Jesus' mission is actually built upon the eternal plan of God to save a people for Himself. Jesus is not a haphazard shepherd hoping to find some sheep along the way. No, Jesus has a particular flock, particular sheep that the Father has given to Him. And those particular sheep follow Jesus' voice because the Father gave them to the Son. In fact, that's the distinguishing characteristic of Jesus' sheep. They listen when he calls, they listen to him. How do you recognize Jesus' sheep? They listen to his word, they listen to his voice. So even though Jesus doesn't identify himself as the shepherd until verse 11, he's clearly the one in focus in these opening verses. With faithful care, he leads his sheep, and he does so from the front. In thinking about this mark of Jesus' ministry, I'm reminded of another passage, Hebrews 4, where Jesus is pictured as going ahead of His people, going out in front of them. Listen to how the writer to the Hebrews expressed this same truth. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Friends, that brief statement wonderfully captures the scope and faithfulness of Jesus' Leadership, Like a shepherd, He has gone ahead of us. He has passed through the heavens, blazing a trail and open the, opening the way for us to enter the presence of God. You see, that's why He's the good shepherd, because He faithfully takes us where we cannot take ourselves. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. If you belong to Christ by faith, He's not in the back yelling at you to speed up. He's not cracking the whip trying to drive you along. No, your shepherd is up ahead. And he's calling you by name. He's dealt with the danger. He's opened the way. And with faithful care, he will bring you into that heavenly green country. And he'll bring you there because he's the one out front. Jesus leads his sheep with faithful care. Mark number two. Jesus feeds his sheep with life-giving pasture. Jesus feeds His sheep with life-giving pasture. You'll notice in verse 6 that those listening to Jesus don't understand what He's saying. They don't recognize the shepherd's voice because they don't belong to Him. So in verse 7, Jesus expands on His earlier statement and His expansion provides some clarity. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Clearly, Jesus is not speaking literally. He's not literally a door. Rather, Jesus' point is that He alone is the way into God's flock. If you want to be a part of God's people, then you must enter through Jesus. There's no other door. He's the only door. Then in verse 9, Jesus describes what happens to the person who enters through this one door. Look at what He says. I am the door, Jesus Reminds us, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Friends, that's an incredible promise that stretches all the way back to the Old Testament. That phrase, go in and go out, that's an incredible promise. In Deuteronomy 28, God reminded his people that the truly blessed life is found in obedience to his covenant. That's the good life, obeying God's covenant. Those who kept God's covenant would go in and out from God's presence. They would go in and out and they would enjoy being in fellowship with the triune God. That's the language of Deuteronomy and it's the language of blessing. So in verse 9, when Jesus says those who come in through the door will go in and go out, He's not talking about grazing on green grass. He's talking about feasting on the presence of God. He's talking about delighting in fellowship with the Creator. That's the kind of pasture Jesus provides to His people. He feeds them not with literal food, but with the life giving food of dwelling in the very presence of God. Jesus makes this very clear in verse 10 with a striking contrast. Notice again what He says The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Those who sneak into the sheepfold ravage God's people. The thief is all about ruin and devastation. Jesus, on the other hand, gives not just life, but abundant life. The idea is overflowing beyond what's necessary. If you need 10 days in the green pasture, Jesus gives you 20. It's overflowing. It's beyond. It's excessive. And let's be clear at this point, though. This promise is not about just having a really great life. It's not about having all of your felt needs met. Far too often, verse 10 and the promise of abundant life is detached from Jesus as though His mission were to simply give us a life full of good stuff and material blessings. And while that might sound Good, from a worldly perspective, it's actually pathetic when compared with what Jesus actually gives us. He didn't come to give us stuff. Jesus came to give us Himself. You can have the stuff. I want Jesus. I want that abundant life. That's what He came to give us Himself in covenant relationship. And then through Jesus, we have access to the Father by the power of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the abundant life. It's knowing the triune God and enjoying the life-giving gift of His presence. So I, I have to ask you this. I have to ask you this question. When you close your eyes and envision what it's like to live a truly blessed life, is it God standing at the center of that vision? When, when, when you just take a moment and say, oh, if I could just get to this level and then things would be good, is it God that defines that level? Or is it a better job? Or is it having all the things about your spouse change that you don't like? Or is it having more money? Or is it being able to move closer to family or farther from family? Is it Jesus standing at the center of that vision? Because if it's not, friends, you have some serious business to do with the Lord. Is your vision of the abundant life full of stuff but short on God? Make God your treasure, brothers and sisters, not just what He can give you, not just what He can do for you, but Him in all of His life giving glory. That's the abundant life. Jesus feeds His sheep with life giving pasture. And in in response, we should make it our aim to know this all satisfying God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the abundant life. Mark number three of the Shepherd's Ministry. Jesus guards his sheep with his own life. Jesus guards his sheep with his own life. Verse 11 is the central point of Jesus' teaching. This is where we learn definitively why he is the good shepherd. Notice what our Lord says I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, it was not unusual for a shepherd to protect his sheep from danger. We think about the life of David, the preeminent Old Testament shepherd and how he would fight with wild animals in order to protect his flock. So it's not unusual on one level. But on the other hand, what Jesus says here goes well beyond what a shepherd would typically do. Jesus is not talking about facing danger. He's talking about dying. Actually dying for the sake of his sheep. To put it very simply, Jesus dies so that his sheep might live. They are in mortal danger. So the shepherd steps in and protects them at the cost of his own life. Don't miss that emphasis, friends. That little word, for, is massively significant. When Jesus says He dies for His sheep, He means that He dies in their place, on their behalf. In other words, Jesus speaks here of one of the most precious realities for Christians, the reality of atonement. Atonement. That Word and all that it represents should be one of the anchors for your soul. Jesus has made atonement for His sheep. That means He has paid for the sin of His people at the cost of His own blood. And the fruit of that payment is reconciliation with God. Therefore, having been justified by Christ, we have peace with God. And that's not all. Jesus has made this atonement in order to keep His people eternally safe. Eternally safe. Notice the illustration He uses in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. You can hear the danger in Jesus' illustration. A hired hand is not like a shepherd. A hired hand is in it for the money. He has no connection to the sheep. So when the danger comes, the hired hand flees. And why wouldn't he? His most important concern is his own life. He's got to put bread on the table. I'm in it for the money. If a wolf comes, I'm running. Not the good shepherd. He lays down his life so that his sheep might be protected. That's Jesus' point, friends. He wants us to see that since He laid down His life for His people, there is absolutely nothing that can harm them as they travel the road to the heavenly city. If He laid down His life, they're eternally safe. Jesus protects His sheep and He does so with His life. Listen, I know there are times in a Christian's life when you can get overcome with fear about your own faith or even about your own salvation? Will I make it to the end? How can I be sure that I'm going to keep trusting in Christ? What if some awful hardship strikes and destroys my faith? I have had seasons like that. Maybe you have as well. Maybe you're in the midst of one of those seasons right now, just gripped by fear of what if my faith doesn't make it? What if if I can't hold on to the end? If so, then I pray you would hear the encouragement of the Savior here in John 10. The Good Shepherd will not fail to protect you. How do I know that, you ask? Because He laid down His life for you. That's how you know that. He laid down His life. So when the fear begins to rise and your heart is afflicted with the thought, maybe I won't make it to the end, when that moment comes Remember this truth. Since Jesus died for His people, there is nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels or demons or principalities or power, nothing in heaven or on earth, nothing, nothing, nothing. There is nothing that can snatch the sheep from the Father's hand. Nothing. In fact, look down at verse 28. Memorize this verse, brothers and sisters. Memorize this. These are faith-sustaining words I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you know how many quiet mornings I've sat in my living room and thought, I am such a vile, wicked person. There's no way I'm going to be a Christian next year. There's no way. I go to this verse. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And I put my life in Jesus' hand. I put my faith in Jesus' hands Because that's the only way I can be safe. Memorize this. Memorize this. Put it to work. There's no better anchor for your soul, my friends. Jesus guards His sheep, and He does so with His own life. The fourth mark of the shepherd's ministry is closely connected to the third. Jesus knows His sheep with unending commitment. Jesus knows His sheep with unending commitment. Jesus returns to the same image in verse 14. Look at what He says. I am the Good Shepherd. I know My own, and My own know Me. Now, Jesus has already made both of those points earlier in the chapter, in verses 11 and 4, respectively. But notice the new comparison Jesus introduces in verse 15. Just how deep is the relationship between Jesus and His people? How deep does it go? As deep as the Father's relationship with the Son. Listen again to what Jesus says. I know My own, and My own know Me. Here comes the comparison. Just as the Father knows Me, and I know the Father. Friends, there's no relationship in the universe as deep and personal and long-lasting as the one between the Father and the Son. For all eternity the Father and the Son have known one another fully and completely. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father so that they participate fully in the life of one another. There is no aspect of the Father that the Son does not know. And there's no aspect of the Son that the Father does not know. They know and delight in one another completely without any hindrance. And this relationship can never be broken. From eternity past, To eternity future, the Father and the Son dwell with one another and in one another in perfect harmony, complete knowledge, and unbreakable commitment. This is the glorious mystery of the life that the triune God enjoys within Himself. Within Himself. Now look back at verse 15 and feel the magnitude, the weight of Jesus' statement the relationship between Jesus and His people is like that of the Father and the Son. Friends, that's a staggering statement to consider. That should blow your mind. This is not a relationship of mere acquaintance. No, this is a relationship of deeply personal insight and profound commitment. Jesus withholds nothing from His people just as the Father withholds nothing from the Son. Jesus will never fail His people just as the Father will never fail His Son. As the Father shares His life with the Son, so the Son shares His life with His people. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to have eternal life. This is eternal life. To know God and His Son through the Spirit. Eternal life is not just an unending duration of existence. Eternal life is to participate in the very life of God that He has within Himself. It is to participate in relationship with God through Christ, empowered by the Spirit in such a way that's never going to be broken. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And His purpose is to encourage you. If you know Christ by faith, the Good Shepherd knows you and He will never stop knowing you. He doesn't keep anything from you. He can't can't cast you off because to do so would be to cast off Himself and He could never do these things. To break the relationship with you, He would have to break the relationship with His Father. But the triune God is perfectly unified. He cannot be torn apart. This is the life that He gives for all eternity. The Son will be life to those who trust in His name. Jesus knows you, friends. If you're in Him by faith, He knows you, and He knows you with an unending commitment that will never stop. That's number four. Mark number five of the shepherd's ministry. Jesus seeks His sheep without fail. Jesus seeks His sheep without fail. Notice verse 16, where Jesus highlights the global scope of His mission. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to My voice. Remember, Jesus' audience is primarily Jewish, so when He speaks of other sheep, He's talking about Gentiles. Non-Jews. Gentiles being included in the family of God. And this is exactly what the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do. Isaiah 49, verse 6. It's too light a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light for the nations, that My salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, verse 16 is a clear claim of identity from Jesus. He's telling them, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I came to do what God said the Savior would do. Gather people not just from Israel, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Notice also the certainty of Jesus' mission. Again, verse 16, He says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to My voice. Not, they might listen to My voice. Not, there's a chance they will listen to My voice. Not, they will come if My people come up with enough good mission strategies. No, none of those things. They will come. They will listen to Jesus' voice. For certain, without a doubt, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the Good Shepherd's flock because the Good Shepherd is sovereign. And His mission cannot fail. Even today, right now, as the Gospel is being preached all across this globe, Jesus is gathering His people that have been given to Him by His Father, those whom He has purchased with His own blood, And nothing can stop this work from happening. Overnight, there was a bombing of a Christian church in Pakistan. Seven people killed by terrorists. They can't stop Jesus. Bomb all the churches if you want. New churches will come up. His mission cannot fail. He purchased these people with His blood, and when His Gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit of God gives life to the people whom the Father has given to the Son, and they come to faith, and they are brought in, they hear the shepherd's voice, and they believe... Brothers and sisters, this mission cannot fail. This is why we proclaim the gospel to our children, to our neighbors, to our co workers, and to the ends of the earth. Because we follow a good shepherd who will certainly seek and save his sheep. Not one ounce of his blood will be spilled in vain, he will gather his people. You see, folks sometimes try and make the case that a high view of God's sovereignty somehow discourages us from carrying out the Great Commission. The silly argument goes like this. If Jesus will certainly save His people, then why should we we be worried about having to tell Him anything? If He's going to get them, we can just rest. We can just take it easy. He doesn't need our help. Well, He doesn't need our help. But He tells us to go. So this idea that somehow a high view of God's sovereignty undermines the Great Commission, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. This is the reason why we go. Because the shepherd cannot fail. This is the reason why we speak. Because the sheep know the shepherd's voice. If the sheep didn't know the shepherd's voice, nobody's going to heaven because nobody's getting saved. Far from minimizing the Great Commission, this truth is the heartbeat, the engine, the fuel for the Great Commission. All the great fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters of the missionary movement believed this truth. That's why they went. And I pray it would be so in our lives and from our lips, brothers and sisters, you know already that in our city, our church has a reputation for delighting in and proclaiming the sovereignty of God and salvation. Our church is known for that. We aren't known for a lot, but we're known for that. And what I, want that, what I want to happen is if that's the right hand of our testimony, I want the left hand of our testimony to be and they out-evangelize anybody. Let's make that happen. By God's grace and for His glory, may it be so from our lives and from our lips, Jesus seeks His people without fail and oh how I pray and I beg God that this truth would compel us outward with the Gospel. For the salvation of the lost. That's mark number five. The final mark of the shepherd's ministry. Jesus comforts his sheep with his own resurrection. Jesus comforts his sheep with his own resurrection. A few times now Jesus has referenced his own death. He came to lay down his life for his sheep. And if you think about it. That should be a reason for concern. If the shepherd dies, then what's going to happen to the sheep? We just said they were notoriously dumb. So won't they be hurt or lost? There's this problem hanging out there as we reach the end of of Jesus' discourse. If the shepherd dies, then, then, then what? Well, notice the answer Jesus gives in verse 17. Actually, it's not just an answer. It's comfort. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. Yes, the shepherd dies, but his death is not the end of the story. In fact, his death is not even the ultimate end. His death is a means to the ultimate end. And that end is his own resurrection. It's a purpose statement. I die, why? So that I can be raised again. This is the greatest act of obedience from the Son to His Father. This is the pinnacle of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. That the Son would lay down His life in order to rise again for the salvation of the Father's people. And amazingly, Jesus has a a complete authority to carry this out. Notice verse 18. This This is staggering. No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of My own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received From my Father. From the human perspective, the cross appears to be the world's moment of triumph over Christ, and even over God Himself. Jesus was just unable to stop all of the injustice and the wickedness of those who hated Him. In the end, Jesus lost His his battle, and He lost it in a shameful execution. That's what the cross looks like from the world's perspective. But the reality, praise God, is much, much different. Yes, the good shepherd died, but he did so on purpose. He he was not a victim. Jesus was not a victim. Write that down in your notes. Jesus was not a victim. He's not a martyr. He's not dying as an example. He's not dying to show people what it's like to stand to the very end against injustice. That's ridiculous. He died for his people because He laid down His own life willingly and with absolute authority. He's not a victim. And in the same way, Jesus took His life back up in triumph over the darkness of this world. Death cannot hold the Good Shepherd, for He has an authority not even death can break. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater comfort than this. Steve prayed earlier and it was so appropriate the way he prayed that there's just Abundant heartache in our congregation and abundant reason for rejoicing. I can't answer all of the situations that each individual person is facing. I can't answer those specifically in every sermon. But in some sense, I can by telling you Jesus died and He's not dead anymore. He rose again. There's no greater comfort than this. If Jesus has this kind of authority, even over death, then there's nothing that can possibly harm you. The worst thing they could do to you is kill you. And Jesus already defeated death, so even if they kill you, you win. Because Jesus won. There's nothing that will keep the shepherd from bringing us safely home. You see, this is how the Gospel is meant to sustain God's people each and every day. We don't simply believe the Gospel on day one as a Christian. We believe it every day. We need it every day. We apply it to our lives every day so that whatever situation we face, it's the reality of the resurrection that sustains us to the end. The Good Shepherd comforts His sheep and He does so with the truth that that answers every trial, every darkness, every discouragement. It's the reality of His own resurrection. If Jesus crushed death, friends, there's nothing that will crush you. He comforts His people with His own resurrection. So, we return to the question that we asked at the outset of the sermon. What makes Jesus not just the shepherd, but the good shepherd? It's the ministry He performs on our behalf. He leads us with faithfulness. He feeds us with life-giving pasture. He guards us with His own life. He knows us with unending commitment. He seeks us without fail. And He comforts us with His own resurrection. Truly then, brothers and sisters, He is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. As we began our time this morning, we considered how at the end of the Old Testament, God's people were not being shepherded well, not at all. Remember the words that we read from Ezekiel 34 God's people were scattered with none to seek them. Well, do you know how God said he would remedy that problem? He told the prophet Ezekiel his solution, and it was stunning to say the least. Listen to God's solution from Ezekiel 34. This is what comes at the end of that tragic chapter. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I, I myself, seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. Who is Jesus, friends? He is God in the flesh. Come to seek and save God's scattered people. He's the Good Shepherd. He's our Savior. And He is our God. May our hearts rejoice in Him, both today and throughout eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we've seen so clearly from Your Word that there is truly no one like the Lord Jesus Christ.